Good morning. I want to start this morning as we begin with a, a question. I don't know if you follow this at all or you've seen it, but um, uh, the, with, with next year being a cycle where we, we are elect a president, we've got debates going on and people stepping into presidential race and declaring that they're going to run for president. And I don't know if you pay much attention to it, but I read a really fascinating article the other day, and I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but, but the way people announce that they're running for president. And the article I was reading was talking about how, how much thought and planning goes into that. And uh, what it was saying is that, that every little detail, where they announce, what they're standing in front of, what's behind them, who's there with them, the tie they have on, all these things are so meticulously planned, and all of it's pointing towards what they want uh, the image to be of their candidate, what, it, what they want to get across. What does it say about this person? Because that first impression is so important because they know that's going to be on the news and they're going to get a lot of publicity for it. So the, all this stuff is taken into account. And as I was thinking about that, and they want, so they spend so much time on what, uh, what that looks like and all these reasons why. And I started thinking about that as we're starting this series last week and and continuing this week, we're looking at the words of Jesus and where he went and what he did. And what we're going to look at this morning is the very first miracle of Jesus. And in a lot of ways, it's his his beginning of his ministry. It's right at the beginning. It's kind of his announcement of his candidacy, so to speak. And I wanted us to think about what um, that says about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Because what we're going to look at today is he comes and the very first place he goes and his first miracle takes place at a party. He goes to a wedding feast. He goes to a great big blowout party and there he is right in the midst of it. And that's where his first miracle takes place. And I kept thinking about that. What does that say about him? What does it tell us about who he is and what he came to do and what he does there? What does it say to us? And I want us to think about it in that light a little bit today. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at John chapter 2. And we're going to be in verses 1 through 11, John 2, 1 through 11. And what we're going to look at is uh, the wedding at Cana and his first miracle. So I'm going to read that for us and then we'll, uh, we'll jump in and we'll look at those verses together. But I want you to be thinking about the setting and why was that important? Why did he go here first? So let's, let's think about that as we're reading John 2, 1 through 11. And it says this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Let's pray and then we're going to look at that passage, those 11 verses. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you 
that you're a God that is not far off, but that you came to us, that you entered into this story to show us truth and what it means and how we are to relate to you. We pray this morning that as we open your word, that we'd be faithful to what it says. We pray that your spirit would come and open our eyes to see it clearly and that we would take away what you would have for us, that we would leave here changed, having grown closer to you and seeing your glory more clearly. We thank you for all you do for us and we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So we're going to look at that this morning, and there's three questions I want to ask. And if you're visiting, or maybe you haven't noticed, but I often like to do that. I like to ask three questions. And usually what we do is we ask three questions of the text and let the text answer. So Scripture's telling us they're coming from that. So there's three questions I want us to ask this morning, and it's this. Why would Jesus start at a wedding, a huge wedding feast, a party? Why go there first? Why would that be his first miracle? So why start at a wedding? Secondly, what does he do there? And then third, what does it mean for us today? What do we take away from it today as we look at it? So first, why start at a party? Why does Jesus go to the wedding feast and start there? And to get a good idea to even think about this, to really start to get this, we need to at least talk just a little bit about a wedding was in those days. We actually had a wedding here at this church last night. There was a wedding here and they had their wedding and then they went in and they had their uh, reception and fellowship hall and then they cleaned up and they were out and they were here from five till 10 o'clock and they were done. Nothing like that in Jesus's day. In fact, a wedding feast oftentimes would last a week. It was a huge, huge deal. And it was really like a regional party. People would come from all over and family would come and they'd gather together and they'd have the wedding and they'd do all these things. But it would go on all week and they'd only do it once or twice a year. So it was a big, big deal. It was a big deal. It was this joyous occasion, this wonderful time and all the people would come together and so Jesus is there with his family and his friends, and he's amongst this party, this big feast. And so we start to think about why he started there. And I'm going to go back a little bit, just review quickly what we talked about last week. Last week, we talked about Mark chapter one at the beginning that Jesus comes and he comes to announce that the kingdom is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. And we talked about how that was all of history of the world and making for Jesus to come, that he had come to redeem creation. He'd come to restore our relationship with God that had been broken off by our sin. And what we talked about is that that, that's what he was saying when he talks about the kingdom. And, And in a very real way, when you look at scripture and when you talk about that, Jesus comes and what he's doing in that is he's going to restore the fullness of our joy. He said this often in the way he talked Throughout his life and his ministry, he said it a lot in John 15. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. When you think about what he's saying there and what that means, because it goes perfectly with what we talked about last week. Jesus comes to restore our joy, the joy that is in Jesus that may be in us. Jesus has perfect joy because of his relationship with God, the father within himself. The Trinity, the Holy Trinity has perfect joy and perfect joy. Peace and all everything, absolute perfect relationship. And when Jesus steps into the story for us, that's what he's come to do, to restore our relationship with God, to restore our joy that has been broken off. And he talked that way often in John 16. He says um, to his disciples right before the night before the crucifixion, he says, you have sorrow now. But when you see you will see me again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. 
Jesus talking about when he returns and he says, then your joy will be completed and no one will ever be able to take it from you. And that's all through scripture. You see Jesus talking about that. He talked that way um, in Matthew 25. He talks that way. He gives uh, the parable of of the talents. And then he says, Jesus or God will say to the the faithful servant, he'll say, uh, enter into the joy of your master. So Jesus talked that way often. And you see it not just in the way Jesus talked, but you really see it all the way through Scripture. There's all these themes that run through Scripture that all point to the joy that Jesus came to restore that God wants for us. And one of those we see throughout Scripture is what we read this morning. We read at the very beginning of the service from Isaiah 25. And in Isaiah 25, it talks about a banquet, a huge feast with the greatest wine and the greatest food and all these things. And it says people from all nations will gather together on God's mountain and it will be wonderful. And you get this picture all through Scripture of this theme of the banquet or the feast. You see it in Luke 14. Jesus tells a parable and he talks about what the kingdom of God is like. And he says it's like the master going out and pulling people together and bringing them into this great, big, huge party. And this is the way Jesus talks. And oftentimes I think we miss that within Christianity. We talk about, oh, well, Jesus came to tell us some rules that we need to follow and make our lives really miserable. And maybe if we do some things, then later on it will get better. But that's not the way Jesus talked at all. He said, I came to give you the fullness of my joy. And he said that over and over. And you see it in that uh, vision, uh, that theme of the banquet and the feast all throughout Scripture. But it's not only that. There's another theme that runs straight through Scripture, and it was in our first reading that Larry read from Revelation 19, and that's the theme of a wedding. It's all the way through Scripture. It's right there running through all the way, talking about a wedding feast and our wedding. And what it says is, when you start to look at all of Scripture, that Jesus is coming to claim the church, those who put their faith in him as his bride. It's a wonderful, beautiful picture in Scripture that Jesus is going to come and claim his church as his bride. And I want you to think about even that, uh, what that says, what happens in a marriage. When you get married, when we have a marriage, you come together, two come together, and they become one. That's what Scripture tells us. And they pledge their love for each other, and they say, what is mine is yours, and what is yours is mine. And we say we're now one, and we're together, and we're united. That's the way God talks about us with sending Jesus. I am coming to unite with you and give you what is mine and bring you in. And it's going to be a wonderful wedding feast. And it's going to be a beautiful picture. And that's what we saw in Revelation 19. If you're not sure, maybe you heard that this morning. It talks about the wedding of the Lamb. That's another theme that runs through Scripture. We're not going to go into that today, but Jesus is the Lamb. In Revelation 19, when it says the Lamb is coming for his bride... The bride is the church and Jesus is the groom and he's coming. And so when you start to look at all those themes running through scripture that talks about our joy and the feast and the bride and the wedding and all these things, it's not so weird that Jesus starts his public ministry and his first miracle at a wedding feast. In fact, when you see all of scripture, suddenly it's more like where else would he start it? Where else would he go? This is where the whole story of our lives, of this earth, of this creation is going. It's all headed towards that. So it's so appropriate that Jesus would step into the story, step into history, and then say, I'm going to go to a party first. And that's where my first miracle is going to be. So the why at a wedding, that's why. 
I think there's a lot of, of why. He was there, and it's pointing to that. It makes perfect sense when the king enters the story to redeem for himself a people that's going to be his bride, that's going to end in a joyous party that he'd started a wedding. All right? So that's the first part, why a wedding. The second part is, what does he do there? What do we see Jesus doing at this wedding? And if you know the story, that may seem real obvious because water to wine, that's one of those stories you hear from a very young age. If you've grown up in the church at all, you've always heard that Jesus turned the water to wine and he saved the the wedding. And that's very true. That is what happens. He turns the water to wine. He saves the wedding from basically dying out. Um, He saves this feast to keep it going. He saves the groom from a huge embarrassment, huge embarrassment. If that would have happened and they ran out of wine and everybody knew about it and the party just stopped, this is like your once a year big party and everybody's excited about it. And then they say, uh, the groom didn't plan very well and it's over. You can go home now. And it would have been a huge embarrassment. I was trying to put it in our present day term. This doesn't quite do it justice, but it's kind of like if you had a big giant Super Bowl party at your house. And the third quarter starts and everybody's into the game and it's a great game. And then all of a sudden your cable cuts off because you forgot to pay the bill. (laughs) Sorry, you got to go home. My cable got cut off. We can't watch. That's kind of what it's at. And that's kind of what we see in verse three when when Mary comes to Jesus and she says, "Uh, they have no wine. They're out. What are we going to do? You know, that's kind of what she's saying. She's letting him know. She's saying they're out of wine. And that's a big deal. And now the Super Bowl analogy is not perfect, but that's kind of what it would be like. All of a sudden it would stop. Once the word gets out that that's the case, it would have come to a halt. And this is where, I'm going to be honest, the story gets a little bit confusing. And if you've read this before, maybe you've, you've wrestled with this or you've seen it. But what Jesus says at first on the surface is just, I'll be honest, it's kind of strange at first. And what he says, Mary says to him, they've run out of wine. And Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? It sounds really harsh. Kind of like, what, what just happened? Jesus' mom, come, you know, she comes to them and he says, woman. And, and by the way, it's not quite that harsh in English. It sounds really harsh. It's kind of like he says, uh, ma'am. Ma'am, what does that have to do with me? What he says is respectful. It's not quite as harsh as it sounds, but it's very distant. It's kind of like holding her at arm length. Ma'am, what does this have to do with me? And then he says, my hour has not yet come. But let's take that first part, what he says first, that first sentence. Woman, what does this have to do with me? And there's a couple of things I think what Jesus is doing, and you start to see this through his ministry, and it starts right here in this passage. And that is when Jesus' public ministry comes, and he begins to step in and speak as the Messiah, the chosen one of God, coming to redeem all of creation, suddenly Mary gets pushed over here just a little bit. And it's not that he doesn't love his earthly mother or he cares for his family, but I think what Jesus is teaching and what he's saying is that we all come to him the same way. There's no inside track. Even Mary, his own mother, the one that gave birth to him, he says, no, he kind of holds her out here. And you see this all throughout Scripture. It's not just here. You see it in a couple other places. Um, Trying to remember in Luke chapter 11. He's talking to a crowd and he's just done some miracles and he's done some things. And a lady calls out from the crowd. She says, uh, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed, which if that were today in Dawsonville, what she just said is bless your mama. That's what she yells out. Bless your mama. And Jesus, you know what he says to her? He says, no, no, no. He says, bless those who read God's word and keep it. 
he immediately turns it around and deflects it right back to God. He says, no, 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 you come to me through God. It's not about my mother. And it's not that he was being harsh. It's not that he didn't care for Mary. It was he was pointing people to why he came. You see the same thing in uh, Matthew chapter 12. The disciples are, are there and all these people are gathered around and they're listening to Jesus' teaching. And his mom and his brothers and sisters, they show up and they say, hey, Jesus, your mom and your brothers and sisters are outside. And Jesus turns and he says, who are my brothers and sisters? He says, those who do the will of my father. And he says, these are my brothers and sisters, those around him that are listening to what he's saying. And what Jesus is teaching, and even right here in this first miracle, is we all come to him the same way. We all relate to him as redeemer, as the one who came to save us in the same way. And there's no inside track, even for his family. And I want you to see that's a wonderful thing to think about. There's no ins- If you grew up maybe outside of the church... Maybe you grew up way far away from any church things or whatever, and you think, oh, God could never accept me. I've, been, I've made these mistakes. What Jesus is saying, no. We all come to him the same way. And it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done or how you've... It's all the same, and that's all through his grace and what he does for us. And he starts that right there, even with Mary. And I think part of it, so that's part of it, but I think even part of it when he says to her, what does that have to do with me? You know, in John 8, Jesus says that I only do what the Father has told me to do. Everything I do and say is in perfect union with God. There's no external forces forcing Jesus to do anything. And I think that's the second part of what he's telling Mary. Oh, wait a second. I do what the Father tells me and nothing else. I don't need you to kind of set my agenda for me. No one sets Jesus' agenda for him except for him. And I think that's what he's saying. And that's such a weird, you know, it's kind of a weird thing. But when you start to think about who he is, God in the flesh and who Mary is, suddenly it makes a little sense that he'd say, hey, I've got this. Right. I'm God. I know what's going on. So that's the first part. He kind of holds her off to the side. But then the second part, and I'll be honest, it, uh, it gets a little weirder because he says, my hour has not yet come. And if you're reading, if you have an NIV Bible, which there's, there's nothing wrong with NIV, if you read NIV and it says, um, my time has not yet come, that's what it says in NIV, I want, I want to point out to you that literally it says my hour has not yet come. And you may say, so what? <laughs> Why does that matter? It's important for this reason, because I think it, it opens up what Jesus is actually saying here. Hour in the Gospel of John is used seven or eight times. Over and over, it's a theme that runs through the book. And each time, every time hour is used, it talks about Jesus' death. Now, did that just clear that up for you? Because what she says is we're out of wine and he says, woman, it's not my time to die yet. So it's perfectly clear, right? No, it's perf- no actually it gets weirder when you look at it that way. You're like, well, what's going on? He just says, now it's my time to die. But there's something I think he's saying to her um, that it's not really weird at all. Um, I was reading this week in a commentary, and the commentator said, when we come across something that seems weird that Jesus said we need to ask the question, is it something Jesus is not being clear about, or is it something in me that's not seeing it rightly? For me, I'm going to go with, it's it's probably on my end every time. And uh, I think that's the case. Sometimes we go, wait a second, so what in the world is the connection between Jesus talking about his death and dying at a wedding? When she asks him about wine, what in the world is going on? 
And I think it's this. I think what's happening here is when she asks him, I want you to think about who's responsible for the wine, first of all. Who's responsible for the wine at the wedding? We just said it. The groom is. The groom's responsible for the wine at the wedding. And when she turns to Jesus and she says they're out of wine, he says, woman, it's not my time to die yet. There's only one time Jesus is going to be a groom ever. And it was in Revelation 19 that we looked at this morning. Jesus is going to be the groom only after he goes to the cross. That's the only time that he will ever come to claim his bride. And it's not until then that will happen. So when she says to him, Jesus, they're out of wine. And he says, it's not my time to die yet. I think what he's pointing her to do is that I'm not quite, I'm not the groom yet. It's not my time. But I think what he says, he then goes on to fix the problem for him. I think what Jesus is doing and why he starts at a party and why it all goes down this way is he then turns and he says, it's not my time to be the groom yet, but let me show you how my death points to when that time will come. And he gives them this sign. And so many times, and I was convicted by this this week, and maybe you've thought about this before. I always just read it as Jesus is God over water and wine and time, and he could ferment and make wine in an instant. And that's all true. And I'm not belittling that at all, but I feel like I had missed so much of what he was really saying. Because look at what he says in verse 6. Now, there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rite of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And he says, fill them with water. Now, that may not mean much to you. Jewish, you know, rites of pure. What that was is they had these jars there of water that you would come and you would wash. And you'd wash and you'd get all clean from washing and you'd be ritually clean. You had to wash a certain way and do all this before you ate and entered a house and all these things. And here's this purification ritual. And Jesus says, take those jars that are never used for drinking They're only used for purifying you and fill it with water. And then he turns it to wine. Now, Jesus later in his life would tell us he would kind of re. Actually, he didn't quite do it. It's all throughout the scripture, but he does it. He talks about what wine represents later on in his life. And what is it? We, We do it every day, every week here. The wine represents his blood. And he tells him, you take the purification jars in the way that you're made clean and you take it. And I'm going to turn it into wine and then you're going to drink And he's pointing ahead to what he's going to do later on. Only through my blood will you ever become my bride. Only through my death will that ever happen. Will I ever be able to come back and reclaim my bride? And I think Jesus is pointing to all that. And sometimes we go, oh, come on. That's a little. Really? All that? Do you really think any of these things with Jesus the God of the universe come to us to proclaim why he's come, that anything is too far out of his reach? You think it was just an accident he was at a wedding? It was just an accident that he said, take the purification jars? So what happens in the story? I want you to just think what happens here at the end. What's the outcome for the groom? We said it would have been a huge embarrassment for the groom, but what happens in verses 9 and 10? It says, the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. And he didn't know where it came from. So he calls the bridegroom over and he says, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. You see what happens there? The groom gets credit for what Jesus did. He saves them from embarrassment. In fact, they say to the groom, way to go. You planned so well. You saved the best. All right. 
No, he didn't. He totally messed up. He totally blew it. But Jesus not only saves him from the embarrassment, he gives him the credit. It's the same thing he does with us. He comes to do what we could never do. And I want you to think about what this teaches us and what it tells us. And I want you to think, put yourself in the bridegroom because I relate to the bridegroom here. Right? We screw up and we mess up and we sin and we do all kinds of things. And Jesus steps in and he fixes it for us. That's what he came to do. He comes and steps in until you realize that the only way you can ever be the bride, you can ever be his bride when he returns is by saying, I can't do this. Only you can do it for me. And that's what happens here. The the groom gets total credit. And it's exactly what happens with us with Jesus. Jesus lives the life that we could never live. He lives perfectly. He does everything we couldn't do. And then he goes to the cross and he takes our penalty and our payment for sin. And then he turns around and he gives us all the benefits of it. He gives us the credit. You know, in Hebrews, it says that he makes much of us. That he looks at us and says, look at what they've done. And what he's talking about is what he's done for us. He doesn't even make He makes much of us for what he's done for us. And it's the same thing with the groom. He gets the complete credit for what Jesus did for him. And until we realize that, we'll never fully grasp what he's saying. But then the last part is this. And we're going to end with this this morning. It's not just that, but it's also what we can take. And there's so many things here we can take away, but we're just going to hit on these two. And the last one is this, that Jesus is the master of the feast and it's more than you could ever imagine. In verse 6, he says, It says that they took six stone jars, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. You realize how much wine he just made? 120 to 180 gallons. Way more than they would have ever needed for this wedding. And it's kind of like, well, what's going on? Because it can't be what it's not. It's not Jesus was promoting excess and here, take all this wine. That's not what he's saying. Uh, Proverbs says real clearly that, that if you do that, wine will, make a, will mock you, right? Proverbs 20 says wine is a mocker and it will make a fool of you if you, make it, if you take it into excess. He's not saying that, but what I think he's saying is this. I'm the true bridegroom and I'm the true master of the feast and I'm making more than you could ever imagine and that abundance is to show what it's going to be like when he comes back for his bride. It's going to be so much more than you ever can get your head around. It's going to be so much greater than anything you imagined. And that's where we started this morning as we started our service in Isaiah 25. Because Isaiah 25 says we're all going to come to the holy mountain. And he's going to have the greatest wine and the greatest food and the greatest feast. And there's going to be people there from all nations. And then it says he's going to wipe away every tear And death will be no more and he's going to be with his people and it will so far exceed anything you can imagine. And I think that's what he was pointing to here. I'm going to I'm going to give you an abundance here because this is what I am about. This is what I came to do. You see that? What a beautiful picture of who Jesus is and what he wants for us and why he came. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you meet our needs. We thank you that you care. We thank you that you came to us. We thank you that in the midst of a celebration, you were looking ahead to your death for what you would do for us. 
And that now that uh, as we go through tough times in our lives or whatever they may be, we can look ahead to the joy that you've provided through your death. We can't thank you enough for that. We thank you for the way you love us and the way you care for us. Pray that we'd be faithful to respond appropriately to what you've done for us, that we would thank you in all things, that we'd offer you praise and that we'd uh, always point others to who you are. We thank you for all you've done for us and we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.